Welcome to the Black Psychologist Podcast, where we have conversations and give insight into human behavior and promote mental health wellness. I'm Dr. Kyle Osborne, and with my co-host, Dr. Jason Coleman, we'll discuss health topics, everyday life issues, and try to give you a better understanding of yourself, other people, and the world around you. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully you'll leave with some information that'll have you live in your best healthy life. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. And welcome back to the Black Psychologist Podcast, episode 20. I am one half of your humble and gracious host and clinician here for your listening pleasure, Dr. Kyle Osborne. And I appreciate you being here and listening and watching. But of course, I'm never here by myself. I'm here with, he's a hustler, baby. He just wants you to know and where he's not where he's been, but where he's about to go. The heartbreak kid himself, Dr. Jason Coleman. How are you? Good, brother. I'm good, man. I can't complain. You know, um, it was a rainy day out here in Jersey, but, you know, a good one uh, nonetheless. So what's good with you, though? How you been, bro? I'm cool, man. Um, I'm cooler now. Like you saying, this this heat wave uh, was pretty pretty wild like it was hot as hell these past three days so um yeah man this is uh you know the rain came through and kind of cooled things out until you said it i forgot it was episode 20 man yeah we moving along man we moving along i gotta admit like i said the wrong episode last episode (laughs) it was definitely 19 i said 18 at the (laughs) beginning so you know whatever but um yeah we moving along episode 20 man here we are so that's good man um Definitely, like always, you know, we want to thank everybody for watching, listening, supporting. Um, definitely humble. So please share the videos if you can. Um, if not, you know, continue to like and leave the comments. You know, we definitely appreciate it. Absolutely. So uh, without further ado, uh, you said leaving comments in the video. So we had another one of our listeners and, um, and and supporters send in the video for a question for us to answer. We appreciate that. So we're going to get to that first and foremost. Can you see it, Jay? Yeah, yeah, I got it. What's up? So my question is, how do you appropriately tell someone they need professional help so, okay all right there we that's go that's a good question um you know how do you tell somebody like um you know for them to you know seek like mental health services or support um i think one thing that you got to consider is that I forgot. one thing that you got to consider um you know when you're approaching somebody or you know, you think that they may need some additional support is that you don't want to, you know, embarrass them, right? So isolating the person is usually a good thing. And what I mean by isolate them is, you know, you don't want to address, you know, mental health. A lot of people are more protective kind of over their mental health record than even, you know, their medical records. So, you know, you want to approach them in a space where, you know, they're comfortable, where, you know, you're comfortable um, and you're alone. So you have a little bit of privacy. Um, in terms of of a strategy to talk to the person. Um, I think a good way to kind of um, engage the subject is to try to point out the, the maybe the areas of the life of the person's life where it's um, presenting them with challenges. Um, that's like a good way to try to broach exp- uh, explaining it. But I think ultimately, especially in the cases of the more extreme mental health, like disorders and symptoms, if it, you know, um, infringes on a person's safety, then you may have to go above and beyond their, you know, like over their head, for lack of a better term, um, to get them the help they need or intervention. But that's what I would say to start. So uh, which, what's your opinion? Um, I'm going to highlight the a lot of parts of what you mentioned. Uh, absolutely the right place, right time to have the conversation is, is, uh, is imperative. Um, you know, you want to bring it up in a comfortable or private situation, you know, you know, um, definitely one on one, like like you mentioned, because, um, you know, like suggesting any type of therapy, um, that's a sensitive topic, you know, and, and it can 
you know, for any reason, it can make your loved one or your person that you're you're um, recommending for therapy. Um, that can make them uncomfortable or even embarrassed if you do it like in a public setting or you do it like in a group atmosphere or environment. So um, I also I don't I highly um, caution not to mention it or to recommend it like you're in the middle of an argument. Right. Or in a tense situation. So like if you're having a heated back and forth and, you know, you you go off and you say, well, you, you know, you need therapy. Like, I think that, you know, it can be perceived more as a negative. Right. It can be more right. perceived as like there's something wrong with you and you're kind of like an argument tactic as opposed to um, actually like recommending that this person get it for for help. So, um, you know, the timing in, in the situation, I think, is, is crucial. Um, and also, you know, if you've gotten that situation, um, like it's a one-on-one -on -one situation, start out with love. I think if when you start with expressing kind of your love for the person and, and like your support that you want to see them, like, you, you know, if they've told you about it or however the conversation comes apart, you know, definitely start with, you know, how it's coming from a place of love. It's coming from a place of support and that you hate to see them in distress. Right. So if you're, you're doing it in a in a comfortable manner, because you may not know what that person's view on therapy is. Right. A lot of different people right. have a different perception of therapy or different kind of thought process towards it. So I think starting with that and then you know, depending on maybe once you maybe brought it up, going from, okay, everybody gets therapy. I think normalizing it, if they're not in a place where they're open to, I think normalizing saying therapy and say, hey, you know, everybody gets it um, and give some examples like athletes need coaches, you know, people, we all need to go see the doctor every once in a while. All these other different things. Like when you normalize it, depending on what their reaction is, I think that also can go over well. Um, when you're, you know, suggesting somebody get help. Okay. Um, I think those are all good points. The only thing I would add is just to expect the resistance, right? Um, because if you expect the resistance, you'll kind of be more prepared to manage your own emotions, right? And not get frustrated. Um, you got to expect some type of response from the person, right? Um, the last thing I would kind of say is, don't be afraid. Look at the situation honestly, right? So even if you're somebody's spouse, somebody's family member, brother, sister, mother, you know the people in their life that they trust the most, right? If it's not you, right? Or if they have a negative reaction to you for whatever reason, engage their circle of support, right? Um, engage somebody from their circle of support either to take the lead or, or, or to do the intervention, right? If you know that you're not the right person, you gotta be honest about that sometimes. Um, sometimes you may be in a marriage or maybe a sibling and you know they need help, but you know their best friend is the is the person they listen to mm -hmm. or their girlfriend or they, or, you know, or, or their favorite uncle, you know, or their mom, right? And if that person is not you, you know, you know, you might be a trigger for whatever reason, even if you love the person they love you, um, then you might want to engage somebody from their circle of support to help. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um... Like we've talked about it in the past and we've talked about it with our clients and our patients, you know, the communication aspect and, and how the message is being relayed makes all the difference. So, like you said, right. if the person has a better rapport, a better relation, maybe with their brother or with one of their best friends, that might the message might be better coming from them. You know, um, what I'll also add is um, if you've been to therapy, this might be a decent time for you to share your own experience. So again, mm. kind of normalizing and saying, hey, it benefited me um, and kind of demystifying what therapy looks like because therapy can be very mysterious for a number of different reasons for due to confidentiality, all these other different things. Um, and so if you share like, hey, I was in therapy, it worked for me, this is how it helped me, this is how it changed me, all these other different things that might also provide support. Um, or provide, you know, maybe some motivation for that person. And then also, you know, again, it's just kind of saying, hey, like I'm proposing this because of X, Y, and Z, right? Sometimes we also got to provide some additional reasoning and say, hey, I've noticed this is taking place or I've noticed this. I want you to do well. I want us to do well. I want, however, and so in addition to starting off with love, it's like, hey, I want you to, I'm, I'm saying this to you 
for X amount of reasons. Like, and it's also coming from that, sure. that love part. But like you said, man, you have to be, you have to understand that people may not also react well to it. And we have to accept that, you know, we have to accept that, sure. you know what, this person may not want to go through with it and that's okay. It's no, you know, you want to caution them not also to put the blame on them if the person is not receptive to it and understanding that any individual has a right to say no or not to want to go to therapy too. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that's a fact. And that's kind of like, you know, why I said, you know, in terms of the suggestion, engage in their circle of support, right? Um, because, you know, people are going to be resistant. So you got to expect that. And in order to give yourself the best chance and that person getting the treatment they need, um, you, you want them to hear the message. And if, and if you're not a good messenger, then you want to find somebody that is. Right. Makes all the difference in the world. So, uh, but really good question. Um, hopefully this was helpful for you. Um, for any follow-up, absolutely, you know, send another video, add comments. Um, and um, yeah, thank you for, for sending that video in and, and watching and listening this to everyone else. If you have any questions like that or about anything else regarding, regarding mental health, regarding therapy or regarding any insight that you guys um, have some questions about, you know, send a video, email us at the black psychologist podcast at gmail.com. You know, so the phone lines are always open. Dr. J and I are, we want to help you out. Want to answer some questions. Great. All right. All right. So uh, earlier, Jay, I called you the heartbreak kid. And uh, I'm going to get into the reason why. So uh, <laughs> an article recently came across of why, uh, the slow fade is worse than ghosting. All right. So what do you think? You think, uh, in your opinion, before we get into it, what's worse, ghosting or the slow fade? What do you, what do you think? Uh, I think um, the slow fade is probably worse in the long run. Ghosting will probably feel worse in me in the immediate sense, right, in the moment. But um, in the long run, I think the slow fade is going to be worse because it's going to make you feel like a fool, you know, or make you feel, feel, you know, kind of like misled. All right. See, I think, you know, again, before we get into, I, I'm not, initially, I feel or believe that the, the ghosting is, you know, more tough because it's so abrupt. Right. And they leave like a lot of uncertainty, but we'll get into it. So, um, so for people that yeah. don't know what the slow fade is, I'm going to describe it. So the slow fade is essentially, um, it's a charade where, you know, someone puts on when they've already made the decision to end the relationship, but they don't share that decision with the other party. So instead of telling the other person directly that it's over, they continue to pretend that the relationship is intact while sending missed signals and they slowly drift away. Um, and they, and hoping that the other person will take the, take the hint and, uh, and get the message. So, um, you know, uh, what are your thoughts about this as you, as you read through the article? See, and that's the thing, like the problem with the, you know, slow fade is that, and the slowly drifting away is that again, right. It's a person that wants to have it all. Right. So obviously you don't want to be in that relationship anymore, but you don't want to, you don't want the conflict involved with breaking it off. Mm -hmm. So you're going to slowly fade. You're going to, you know, not call on Monday like you usually do, not call Tuesday, text on Wednesday, you know, check in on Thursday and disappear for the weekend like that, you know, um, the slow fade, you know. Um, again, that's why I said in the long run, you it's probably more painful, right, because the person is going to feel misled. Right. Um, and, and you're going to keep feeding the person hope indirectly. Um, so that's why I think because and obviously this comes from, you know, you sending messages that are inconsistent. So that's why I feel like it. And again, I may come off as callous and cold, but I'm more of a fan of the direct method. Right. Rip the bandaid right off. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, just rip it off. Like, you know, it's over. You know what I mean? Give the person a reason. But you tell them it's over, you know, because it, it hurts worse when you wait. Mm, Cold-blooded, bro. You know? Yeah, um, cold-blooded, <laughs> baby. <laughs> I was thinking, and like you said, you know, a lot of people that use the slow fade, they tend to, you know, 
you know, when they have realized that the, the, the relationship is over, like you said, they they probably sometimes think that they're actually being kind by not telling the person. Right. So they say, right. let me slowly do it then like abruptly. And I, I, I see that aspect that the thinking is flawed or it's not really accurate, because like you said, in the long term, you're really kind of dragging the person on. But then I'm thinking of the other side of it, of, you know, when you go somebody and you abruptly end it, there's like it leaves a lot of uncertainty. Right. It leaves like it's just like I feel like the individual that's being ghosted is like, well, what did I do? Right. What what is there something wrong with me? You know, we talked about this like way, way in the beginning of the pod of like, you know, you maybe you just were, you know, you maybe just went that person's flavor and they just like, all right, well, cool. I'm not I'm not going to hit them up. I'm just going I'm just going to roll out on them. And now that leaves the other person like. Well, I, I don't know. Now, now the racing thoughts, all these different things kind of start to come into play. And like with the ghost thing, I feel like, ah, you know, that person is just kind of left like kind of holding the bag. Like, so you, no, so you prefer the slow fade. That's I, what you're saying. I don't, I don't prefer. Yeah. You know, um, Yo. <laughs> I don't, listen, man, I already told you I'm going to rip the band aid off type of person. You know, I chose a side. So what are you saying? So, <laughs> all right. So here's the thing also, right? So like like the article says, like the slow fade is gaslighting also, right? Because like, again, you're you're causing that person to kind of, you know, you're dragging them on and you're kind of giving them hope or maybe when it's not. And then at the same time, I'm not trying to sound, sound callous either, uh, but I know I'll probably get killed for this. I also do believe that there is, uh, I guess it depends on the slow fade. Let me say that. All right. Okay. Because... You got the slow fade where someone is just saying, uh, maybe just kind of dragging them on. But then there's also the slow fade where, like you said, the inconsistency. And if someone's reaching out, right, if they're just like, hey, you know, what? let's go get something to eat. And the other party's like, nah, I'm, I'm cool. Something came up. Right. Two days later, they're like, hey, you want to go see a movie? And the other party's like, mm, nah, I'm good. Uh, you know, something else came up. I do feel like maybe by like the third or fourth um, you know, kind of turn down or rejection, either a conversation should take place, or I'm not saying the other person should take a hint, but I do feel like those are some flags when you're starting to kind of see. So I'm not I'm not putting it on the the, the slow, you know, the person who's getting slow faded that they should be like, uh, however, I do feel like there are some flags that could, you know, someone couldn't notice or be aware of. So, so that's where we kind of go into a gray area, right? Because some people, if you're talking about a person reading the signs and being right. able to say like, okay, well, this person's obviously not interested in me anymore, right? That's right. a very logical thing. But when you got emotions, the heart wants with the heart wants, right? Male or female, right? I've seen both, you know, genders do it. You know, some, some people just won't accept no, especially when you're still in contact with them and still being nice to them, mm-hmm. you know? so. Some people will legitimately put you in a situation where you feel like you either got to ghost them or you're going to have to be mean to them. Right. Because and I'm not I'm not promoting that. But what I'm saying is for some people, the slow fade wouldn't even work because they're going to be like, well, what about this? What about that? Or they're going to, you know, perceive you still reaching out to them as there's still hope. You know what I mean? So. What I said when I what I mean by be make you be mean is their perception of you being mean is gonna be like, listen, I'm not interested, right? They're gonna perceive that as you being mean. But for you, you may look at it just like you said before. You may be well, for the last three weeks I've been saying, I can't go eat, I, I'm too busy to do this, I'm too busy to do that. And you gave them all the signs. So that's why I was asking you, like. I guess is it dependent on time? I, you see, I think that's another question, right? You also got to consider how long, you know, um, you've been dating or you've been with the person. Well, so I think that I, that's something else we have to consider. See, I think that comes into play, especially when you're talking about ghosting, right? Because when we had this conversation before. I perfectly think ghosting is acceptable, like perfectly acceptable, especially if you're talking about like social media dating apps, people like you're just 
texting back and forth with, you know, I don't know the latest dating apps, but you're texting back and forth with them for, for a few days, hours, a week, whatever. Right. I don't know that they deserve a sit down. You understand what I'm saying? Um, so what is the what is the limit? Because again, in an article, in an article, they were saying after a few dates, you could send somebody a text like, "Nice to meet you, but I don't feel the connection," and just move on with your life. That's what they're saying. After a few dates is appropriate. So, what do you think, man? Like the like the Seinfeld episode, right? Like after how many dates do you have to sit down face to face and talk to a person, or can you? text them or what, what's the limit because they're saying a few dates you can text somebody nice to meet you i don't feel the connection you know um uh, some people may feel like after a few dates you gotta have a, a like a like a real conversation face to face at least well i mean if you ghost let me ask you this how do you how do you ghost right when you ghost is it is it like <laughs> yo like is it is it the joint like you or like when you say Yo, I'm ripping the band-aid off. Is it like you just sending a text like, hey, uh nah, nah, we, can't, we, nah. we ain't kicking when anymore. I was talking about when I was talking about ripping the band-aid off, that's like it coming out of your mouth, like it's not working out. And okay. I don't really I don't I don't for whatever reason, I don't want to be in a relationship no more. I don't want to be in a relationship no more. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So that you that, that that's not giving the other person wiggle room to you know, rope you back in for lack of a better term. It's like, I don't want to be in a relationship no more. Every time a, a, a woman broke up with me, they didn't give me no no leg room to get back. They said, listen, I'm not in that space no more. <laughs> me. So I didn't have a choice in the matter. You know what I'm saying? So that's, you know, that's not ghosting to me. That's just ending a relationship. To me, Ghosting is something that occurs like on a dating app or something. Like you may be talking to somebody for a couple of days and then you meet somebody else or you're not interested no more and you you don't talk to them no more. And I mean, that makes, it's, I know a lot of some, for some people that may be very disappointing, you know what I mean? But in the world of dating apps, you're, you're probably not the only person they're talking to anyway. They're texting probably with a lot of people, mm. you know? Um, so... I don't know. What do you think? I think, you know, it, it comes to play. One, I don't think it needs to be in person, right? So to answer your question earlier, like, I'm not meeting with anybody in person. I mean, unless the relationship <laughs> is serious, I'm not meeting with anybody. Like, if we've just been texting kind of back and forth, dating app or, or or what have you, something to that extent, I'm not meeting you in person to break up with you or to say, like, listen, like, you know, it'll just be a situation. Oh, <laughs> hey, what do we? What do I gotta go out for now? I, I gotta go spend money to break up with you. Is that how that works? Yo, you know, I'm, I don't believe in that. Yeah, so spending money to break up with somebody that's crazy. Yeah, like you know? we, you know, we just go to Starbucks. I gotta go. I gotta, you know, I gotta gas up the car to go out the. No, I'm not doing that. Um, that's inconvenient. But that, not doing that. Um, I do feel like this is where technology coming in place where absolutely you should, um, communicate. So you know that's that's. All jokes aside, and I think that's where the issue comes in with the slow fade and ghosting um, is that an explanation, right? People want to know why, like, okay, like, why, why is this happening? Even though you're saying, and because that's usually the follow up question, like, even when you, like you mentioned, when you say, oh, well, for me, it's not working out or people want to know why, right? Because if they don't feel the same way, it's like, well, it's something I did, something, you know, am I not? Th- and then it just the long line of questions starts to kind of rattle through the brain of, you know, and they want to know why they want some type of explanation um, of why they're being treated in such a why the relationship. Ended. Um, so I absolutely do feel uh, communication is key with this. Like you do, depending on how long you've been with the person, you know, letting them know and say, hey, I'm not on the same page as you. You know, whether how much you want to go into that detailed explanation is totally, you know, um, up to you. But uh, I'm yeah, not, I, meeting I, in, not meeting in person, though. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I agree with you, man. Um, the communicating it, the part, that part is the most important. The why, that's kind of the gray area because 
even if you tell the person why they might not accept it, you might not even fully know why it might just be a feeling, you know, um, but communicating to the person that your portion in terms of where you stand, a relationship is over. You know what I mean? That's the main part, you know? Absolutely. So also just a little caveat, you don't know how that person is going to react. So you don't want to be in a public place (laughs) that thing goes left. Oh yeah. 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 We can't have that. All right. So if you are um, able or able to manage to not to survive, not getting ghosted or slow faded, you might (laughs) actually uh, make it to the altar. So if you've made it to the altar, you know, once you said your I do, your I do's, um, you know, you might think that, you know, you're basking in that easy breezy glow for the foreseeable future. Right. However, after, you know, you said the I do's, you know, changes tend to arise when two lives join together. And, you know, that can create for some choppy waters, you know, depending on how your, you know, how your setup is. So. We came across some uh, an article where uh, some relationship experts or relationship therapists shared the common fights that couples tend to have during their first year of marriage, and uh, they provided some recommendations on how to navigate these uh, these issues. So we're going to read through all of them, but we're only going to um, highlight just the three of them that are tend to be most popular. Right. So the first fight or first common fight that tends to uh, that newlyweds tend to have is the what happened to our sex life fight. So that that was number one. Um, number two is the, when are we going to have a baby fight? All right. Coming in at number three is the, we need some better boundaries fight. Number four, the I'm sick of cleaning up after you fight. Number five, how do we split up the holidays fight? Number six. The what goes where fight and coming in at number seven, the you're not good with money fight. All right. Mm -hmm. So those are the the top seven issues or fights that newlyweds tend to experience during their first year of marriage. And like I said, we're going to highlight just a a few of them. And we're going to start off with number three, the what happened to our sex life fight. All right. So this seems that many couples experience a dip in their sex lives during the first year of marriage. What's your take on this, Jeff? It, this was very confusing to me. You know, admittedly, I'm you know I, I'm not married, um, but it's very confusing to me because I would just think, from a personal standpoint, you know, you would kind of be locked in from the romance aspect during your first year of marriage. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought it was game time. If, if for nothing else, because the quote unquote honeymoon period is probably got is, is is half of the first year of marriage. You know what I mean? Um, so, uh, I mean, just in terms of adjusting to just life together, I don't know, for some people, you know, moving in, living together, um, you know, full time. I, I don't know. Like, I, so I don't understand what causes this. But what I will say is I think it's one of the most dangerous fights to have in your first year of marriage, you know, um, because I think... Um, Sex is very important to a relationship. It's, it's, it's even, you know, more important to me to, you know, to a marriage. Um, it's not the most important thing. I'm not, I'm not saying it's the most important thing, but I think people undervalue how important being sexually satisfied is within your relationship. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if in the first year, you know, you're, you're not satisfied, I think, or, or if your sex life kind of is deflated over the first year, I think it's a good chance that you and your partner, you know, are not, don't have open communication when it comes to, you know, what satisfies you guys, you know, or, um, you know, what, for lack of a better term, the other person requires, you know, to be comfortable in that sense, right? Um, but I think it's a, it's, it's something that, you know, if you're not comfortable talking about, you need to get help we're talking about right you need to get a mediator somebody to help you talk about it because man um sex like a few other key things on this um list in my humble opinion will tear your relationship apart quicker than any outside forces ever will right um Mm -hmm. you know um gotta be physically satisfied with your partner i don't know what you think um so 
I know that this is not an uncommon issue that takes place in marriages, right? That the sex life will start to dwindle. Um, and then, like you mentioned, that creates uh, a, a host of issues. What I was thinking uh, that could could that could contribute to um, a sex life decreasing during the first year is that nowadays or in this more modern era, you have a lot of couples that have been together for an extended period of time, right? Prior to marriage. A lot of couples are already living with each other. A lot of couples are already sometimes already have children. So I'm thinking that the sex life is already where maybe previously possibly like where you didn't have as much access or time with each other like years years or generations ago um that yeah okay when you get married now everybody's under one roof and you know things are happening you know more frequently but now i feel like by the time you've gotten married depending on the relationship you've been together for a significant or at least a decent amount of time so your sex life is already by that time already you know it's already bumping so i'm thinking that possibly if you've been together four or five years and then you get married by the fifth year or so like you're already kind of into it so the newlywed phase is already kind of taking its course especially if you moved in with each other so i'm thinking that like maybe because you've already had so much access and you've already had that period where it was happening like so frequently and everybody was so into each other and and, and everything was so intense um that maybe that's contributing to the sexual passion dying down so that that's what I thought. Mm. Well, I mean, the groups that we're talking about is definitely important, right? Because if you're talking about a couple who's been living together for seven years and now they're like, all right, we're going to decide to just go on, you know, we're going to go get married. You know what I mean? Um, And they're coming right back to the same setting that they were sharing before. To me, that's different than two people, you know what I mean, who we're dating two years, are living in separate places, yeah. come together to get married, move into their own place for the same first time. That's a way different situation than people, you know, for lack of a better term, that are like playing house or whatever you want to call it, no disrespect to nobody, but living together, cohabitating, right? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's different if, you, if you're doing that first because um, you're, because you're essentially behaving in that role without the paperwork or whatever it is. So like you said, you can't essentially count the day you you kind of get the official paperwork as the honeymoon period. The honeymoon period was six months ago right. or six years ago when y'all moved in. You know what I mean? So you got to kind of, if you think about and remember that period, you know, I'm sure the sex life wasn't depleted because everything was, you know, new and novel around, around you, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think when you bring that up, that's a very important point. Um, and, you know, we should kind of consider what groups we, we're talking about. But I, either way, in the first year of marriage, you know, to be experiencing problems in your sex life, I think it's a very big red flag. Yeah. I th- um, ongoing conversation, I think, can mitigate these this particular issue. Um, having that open conversation, like you mentioned, um, of what your partner is into, what their needs are. Um, and sure. being really as much as in tune to their sexual desires as possible. Like I said, it's a very important um, aspect or factor in, 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 in any marriage. And um, if you're noticing things aren't happening as frequently and it could be due to work, it could be due to if you have a kid, all these other different factors that, that could affects, uh, affect, you know, the sex life, then a conversation definitely needs to take place. Um, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, that that's the, that'll start just the domino effect of, of other issues. Um, and then just being open, right? Being open to that feedback about what your spouse is, what they're getting, what they're not getting. Um, I think that plays uh, an important role, but yeah, absolutely. Red flag if um, that comes up in the first year. All right, yeah. number three, we need some better boundaries fight. So this refers to um when you have a married couple and during that first year, you have a lot of outside input, right? You have family members, you have friends um, kind of asserting their input into the marriage as far as asking questions like, oh, when y'all going to have a baby or when y'all going to do this or giving all types of maybe solicited or unsolicited advice. And 
Right. Um, and that's where, you know, these that's where the, the issues start to arise when you, you know, you're not setting boundaries around your marriage and you're letting all these other different outside or external uh, forces and factors have input. Um, what's your take on this? I thought this was the, the most complicated one to me, only because when you're talking about boundaries, the first thing I kept talking about was like, all right, thinking about was like, okay, family members buy the house, borrowing money, that type of stuff, right? Um, because which, what was once one person essentially becomes two people, right? Or two people have access to it at least, right? So I think it's just a tough one because it's a lot of factors, like cultural factors. Are, culture is definitely a factor. That's true. Because you got some cultures where you marry people, you marry their family, right? So you may be the type of person that you like, yo, my house is my house. Like, I don't want your cousins and your aunts coming stay here. If they come to New Jersey, we can hang out all day, but they're going to sleep in a hotel. You know what I mean? Some people culture, that's an insult if you if you if family doesn't come stay at your house mm-hmm. or eat at your house or or in, in other cultures, you know, family comes to your house and they can kind of take over your, your home, right? Uh, um, some people don't, you know, aren't aren't gonna like that, right? And then personality will factor in. You know, you've seen a movie Baby Boy, right? So you got some people got different personalities where it's like you may marry somebody, and it's like, well, yeah, but I don't want your mama over here, you know, cleaning and, and cooking, and she over here every day, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that type of stuff. Don't, when we talk about boundaries, when you're merging two, two, essentially two lives into one, all of those things aren't necessarily considered all the time. You know what I mean? So when you talk about culture or family, personality, um, I think that that makes one of these one of the more difficult ones. Um, I think it gets sorted through a lot easier than the other ones because, you know, same way you don't pick your regular family, you don't pick your extended family. You know what I'm saying? So I think people sort through those things, you know, um, or they find their way a little better. Um, but it could get rough, man. It get rough. It get rough. You know, yeah, it, can, um, it, can, it can get out of hand real fast. Um, and it could put a strain on on your marriage, right? If you're not setting these these healthy boundaries because it could be either physically like you said you could have a family member and depending on the culture they could always be at the house right or it could be a situation where you can have as they always say uh the mama's boy right so if you have a situation where you know um the husband maybe their mom is always over cooking doing other different things and the wife is like hey like your mom's always here Right. Because even though they have that close relationship, so it could be a physical aspect, like you said, where people are are (laughs) intrusive and in the house or it could be an emotional or verbal thing. Right. Where you're getting advice. Right. Family members are are like, yeah, well, you know, my mom said that we should do this or, you know, auntie or grandma said we should do this or everyone starts to have their input. And that can also affect the well-being of a marriage if you're not putting these boundaries in. And so, you know, you really have to be cautious when you're um you know soliciting input or advice if like you're having issues in the marriage or something comes up and people start giving all these all these tips and all these advice and because you know that may not be received on very well on either party so i feel like it could be physical or it could be emotional or verbal um yeah you have to protect the sanctity of your family right this is your family this is the family that you created and um yet you really have to incorporate some some boundaries in, in on both avenues of things but like you said it can be difficult if it's a cultural situation or if family members are going through a difficult time and they're always over like is there like you said right. a lot of factors however you have to protect your sanctity you have to protect your relationship because it'll start to impose and, and you know and you know some family members always going through a difficult time especially when, when they know when they think you got it you know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> they always going through through a difficult time. Always, man. If you're the go-to person, right? Like if you're the go-to yeah. 
cousin or your your wife or your spouse is the go-to individual that everybody you know they're the problem solver of the family or you know like yeah like right. it's, it's the partner like yeah, that's gonna start to you know really wear and tear on that relationship like you said phone calls in, interruptions all these other different things that are taking place and you know now your relationship and your 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 marriage has become has gotten interrupted in the process Right. So uh, absolutely you want to be attentive and have these, you know, um, these boundaries set up to safeguard that. All right. So you mentioned that example earlier in uh, the previous issue where you're talking about borrowing some money. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Number seven, you are not good with money fight. Um, yeah. Money is notoriously touchy it's thorny it's a, it's a very contentious subject for a lot of couples and especially right. after you get married and you're combining you know incomes you're you know opening a a joint bank account right you're you're saving together all these other different things and you know uh when you're starting to combine finances like that can become if you're on two different pages that can become a real issue you know so take us through what your thoughts were with that Listen, a lot of people may not like my my thoughts on this, but I I, I stand on how I feel. Like financial st- instability up there with you know um, infidelity is one of the top reasons for divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, there's really less of an excuse for it because there are things that you these are things that you should sort out before you get married. Just like somebody's idea of children, do they want them? How many do they want? If you're getting married to somebody and you're unsure of their ideas of these things, not only should you not be getting married, you don't really know the person that well. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know what idea you're marrying. If you're, if you're walking down an aisle with somebody and you don't know whether they want to purchase a home, whether they're a good saver, whether they spend all their money, you know, on frivolous things, what do you really know about the person? You don't know whether they want to have children. Well, you, you know, so... That's the first thing. It's one of the biggest causes of divorce and it's preventable, right? Because these are things you should sort out first. But most importantly, I think it should impact. It's almost as important as who you have children with, right? How responsible somebody is with money because it impacts it impacts generational wealth. Mm-hmm. So if, you're, if you see somebody that's financially irresponsible, right? it should be as unattractive as somebody that's unattractive to you. <laughs> you. You understand what I'm saying? Because yeah. it impacts generational wealth. That's going to impact your kids, your grandkids, where you live. What you Now, I'm not saying marry somebody because they have money and then don't have money. So that's what it sounds clear. like, Jay. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> but let's be clear. We're talking about somebody's perception, right? Are they a saver or are they a spender, Right. Are they thinking about building generational wealth and passive income streams? Or are they thinking about spending? You, you understand what I'm saying? That's what I mean. So if you're, that should be just as important as all the other things you consider when you have uh, children with somebody or marry somebody. That's all. That's my, that, that's my only point, you know, because it impacts, you know, generational wealth. Yeah, I feel like this. Yeah, I truly believe that this question or not question, but this issue is an ongoing conversation that needs to take place all throughout the relationship, especially when you become serious with that person. Um, it's just as like we talked about, sex should be that ongoing conversation that right. you continue to tap in. You continue to, you know, have that ongoing dialogue because, you know what, especially as you start to say, hey, I want to spend the life with this person. And when things become, you know, legal and you paperwork is signed, like you want to know, okay, this person, what what debt they have, right? You want to know their credit score. You want to know all of these other different things. Like you said, their spending habits, all of these other different things, because that's about to be lumped in with yours. You're about to be, you know, responsible, be in the same boat as this individual. And if you're trying to save up and do save up for a house, or like you said, have kids or, you know, all tuition, all these other different things that are that are going to be needed in a joint effort. Yeah, absolutely. You want to know ahead of time and you also want to continue to know, like, OK, how is this person spending habits, their debt? All, like, where are they at with things? OK, because if you don't have transparency um, and honesty when it comes to money, 
you're going to fall right into that category, like you mentioned, of that divorce, right? You're more likely or you have a higher probability of falling victim, unfortunately, to divorce due to financial issues. And so, yeah. you know, it's you have, I mean, money matters like they you have to be practical with things. You have to have this ongoing conversation, this dialogue about, hey, how are we spending money? What are your plans? Like, what? where are we at with that? Because once things become combined, listen, mm, you know, so uh, sure. yeah, that's a that's a conversation or an issue or a topic that I uh, continuously needs to take place within, especially before you get married. Definitely after you get married and as you continue to go along and whatever plans that you guys have as a family, it's going to involve money anyway. So if you're not in the loop with that, if you're not having that open communication, this is where a lot of errors start to take place. I mean, yeah, only because, again, when we say money is important, it is. And and why is it important? Because you can't have two people that are are working against each other. You can't have one person that's trying to save and the other person that's a spender you know you know what i mean you gotta have people you gotta be on the same page you know um if you kind of want to make progress in terms of as a team and that's kind of what a marriage is so um finances are important and i think a lot of people approach it with like a wait and see attitude or he or she will change type of attitude and you know they end up years into a marriage um and they're dealing with additional stress that could have been avoided um, just by either kind of reading the signs or, you know, having clear, you know, um, goals, you know. But there you go. Those are the, the, the top three, you know, um, things on the list by Looney Weds that we we thought were important to highlight. Um so, yeah, absolutely. If you, uh, you guys are listening, you want us to get to the other ones that we didn't talk about, send us a message, comment, and uh, we'll, we'll swing back around to it. All right. So yeah. now we're going to uh, switch gears and talk about music. All right. So we've talked about in the past uh, different musicians and how music is affected and um, as far as it associates with mental health. So recently, a uh, biographer uh, for Ray Charles, the late, great Ray Charles, uh, David Ritz, uh, was talking about how a lot of people are knowledgeable about Ray Charges, his uh, his his background, his, his his history, and a lot of the trauma that he experienced um, due to uh, losing his uh, his eyesight. I think at age seven, he had also um, witnessed before losing his eyesight his brother passing away in, in a drowning accident. And so a lot of people attribute the trauma and some of his uh, adult issues and struggles with uh, substance use and other different things as um, a correlation or or contributed from uh, his trauma with um, being blind and losing his brother. However, David Ritz mentions in this article that um, Ray Charles attributes his early nervous breakdown and trauma due to um, his mother's passing when he was a teenager. So... Uh, what was your take on this, Jay, as you were reading through this? Uh, um, listen, I thought it was a good point, right? Because, again, he went to, to go um, to the school at seven, right? And they said at the school, while he was at the school, he lost his mother. So sometime between the age of uh, uh, seven and when he was a teenager, he lost his mom somewhere between that time. Right? Yeah, I think it was like um, 13 or 14, I think, around that time when he lost her. Right. Yeah. So, again, I think one thing that we talk about, um, even though he was a teenager, you know, when we talk about ruptured attachments, um, I think that's part of trauma that's kind of overlooked a lot, Um, especially when we talk about a child. He's still an adolescent, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Already with a disability, already has lost a sibling, you know, and they lose a primary caregiver. Right. Um, So when we talk about kind of like developmental trauma, you know, I know he's a little older, you know what I mean? Um, But he did, you know, out, he was, had had been in an out of home placement since seven years old, (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, So with the disability, with what he has seen with his brother, with that separation from the home environment, without the loss of his primary caregiver, you know, there's a lot of smoke there in terms of developmental trauma already, you know what I mean? Um, so what I would say about it is 
that's something that we always over we overlook a lot, right? And I think it it underlines again um, how we should look at trauma differently, right? Because somebody doesn't have to be shot, doesn't have to see an accident, doesn't have to be hit by a car to experience trauma, right? So all of these children, right? If you're a teacher and you have children who are in your class who are in out of home foster placements, they've experienced trauma. If you have kids who've lost a a caregiver, or they have a caregiver who's, who's sick with a chronic illness, they've experienced trauma, right? These are these are things, you know, or or they've been removed for a, an extended period of time. So I think it kind of highlights another part, you know, of trauma that definitely impacts people across the lifetime that we don't kind of look at all the time. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about developmental trauma, I mean, you have to also look at his the background. Um, he grew up in the South. In the segregated South, um, they were dirt poor. Um, and I believe one of the things that contributed to him, uh, to his blindness is because uh, he, I think it was uh, due to gl- glaucoma. And because, you know, they're dirt poor, it's not like they had access to um, to medical care. So in addition to one, you have the socioeconomic aspect of it. You have a situation where, um, you lost your brother, like you mentioned, um, you know, you're, you're going blind, like developmental trauma, complicated trauma, right. Or complex trauma. Right. So you have right. all of these other different things that he's battling with, um, in addition to, you know, all the other issues that in the, in the South. So we also take a look at, because we're talking about grief, we talk about grief is individualized. And so there are so many different things that can complicate grief for any particular individual. So he had a really close relationship with his mother. I mean, his mother one was a, was a strong individual. I mean, she had him at 15. She experienced uh, her own medical issues. Cause I believe for the majority of her adulthood, when she was alive, she had some health issues because I think she walked with a cane. So, okay. But she like they had a very close relationship. Like she he has said it in a lot of different interviews and um, in the movie and through his biographer that he attributes his mother for the reason why he is who he, he was. Right. Have him becoming that composer. Like she didn't right. allow him to get down on himself when he became blind. Right. She said, listen, I think the quote is something like, hey, you're blind, but you're not dumb. Right. You can still go and do things. She's the one who worked so hard. And even though they were poor, she like worked her ass off and found a way to send him to um, that Florida school uh, for the deaf and blind in St. Augustine. Like that's not a school that wasn't easy for him to get into, given his background, one, given his race and then also given the money that they didn't have. But she found a way. Right. So that is already speaking volumes about their relationship. And I think while he was at the school, that's when he found out that his mother passed. So I don't believe he was there when it took place. No, no, no. I don't believe he was there. They said he was, you know, gone. um, And he kind of described, he used the words nervous breakdown, talking about not being able to speak, eat, you know, um, sleep, all of those things. Um, And listen, it's reflected, right, in all of the, obviously, we, we have to consider context. Right. Like you said, in terms of the, 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 the world, in terms of the state he was living in, um, in terms of that, the, the time period he was living in. Um, but we know we still know that it was still maladaptive coping. Right. And that's sure. present all throughout his life in terms of the substance use um, and the heroin use and the alcoholism and all of those things. Um, of course, we want to consider that. Obviously, we want to consider the context in, in which that occurred. I mean, like, think about think about getting that phone call, bro. Like if you're away and you get that phone call that your mom has passed, like I can only imagine again, that's another factor that can complicate grief. Like when, you know, like you said, he went to the motion where he wasn't eating, he wasn't sleeping, all these other different factors or symptoms that he was experiencing like that. That's a huge blow. And that's why he said, like, he knew that his world had ended. Yeah, I mean, listen, that's like I said, that's when we when we talk about you know, um, specific types of, of trauma, um, the loss of a primary caregiver, you know, that's a, that, that's a big thing, you know? Um, and, and as it, during your adolescent years, you know, it, it, it can be, it can 
be just as impactful as, you know, if you lose them, you know, obviously during, you know, childhood. So um, it's a big deal, you know. Um, there's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason why he called it a breakdown, right? Because if we think about this man, he had been through so much more. For him to pinpoint this one period, um, it's obviously, you know, very important. So, um, you know, again, it just shows how one thing, you know, like the loss of his care, his, his mother, you know, affects his ability to manage his emotions, you know, his ability to, to cope appropriately, his relationships, his interpersonal relationships, all of those things, right, um, are affected by these few experiences that occurred when he was, a, a, you know, um, an adolescent. So, again, it's just we need to deal with trauma. Like you said, the loss of a caretaker, you know, could absolutely be a catalyst, you know, to ongoing things, to to trauma. And um, um, I didn't know he actually wrote a song. He actually he has a song called Mother um, that he has on one of his albums. And I was looking at uh, I was listening to it and I was looking at the lyrics and it's a pretty powerful song and very strong bond. That's just what it, you know, it, um, personifies that he has a very strong bond, a really strong relationship with his mother. And um, yeah, I mean, it's something that we really, like you said, we have to be more aware of and we have to start to take in consideration when you see what a child is going through, when you see the, the behaviors. OK, what's happening behind the scenes? Right. Because a lot of kids are unfortunately have experienced so much trauma, just like we've talked about in previous episodes, just on their way to school. Right. Just oh, yeah. walking in the door. So much is going on and what they're going through in their day to day lives. So um, but this was a good read. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, you know, you sent across our desk. This is, this is good. All right. Yeah. So staying yeah. in the music world, we're going to fast forward. All right. To my guy, T-Pain. All right. My guy, your <laughs> guy, popular guy. All right. All right, so T-Pain recently on the episode of um, This Is Pop, right? Uh, this Is Pop is a uh, Netflix series, and it talks about just kind of different elements or different uh, subjects in music. And so they were talking about auto-tune. So we all know, and we're all familiar with, with T-Pain with being one of the, uh, I don't want to say pioneers of it because it was used prior to him, but he definitely made it more popular um, in the past 10, 15 years. And so he recently opened up about his lengthy battle with depression, which he states began after Usher allegedly insulted his music. All right. So I'm going to paint the picture for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So he mentions and he, he he mentions that he was on. This is like 2013, maybe 2014 or so. Uh, and he mentioned that he was on a, a commercial flight. He was in um, he was in first class. And he said that um, he was kind of, you know, enjoying the flight, maybe sleep or something of that, uh, to that knowledge. And he said the, the the stewardess or the flight attendant taps him on the shoulder and was like, hey, Usher wants to talk to you. Right. So Usher was on the same flight in first class. He's like, yo, Usher <laughs> wants to talk to you. So, you know, he goes back there. Uh, you know, it's Usher. Right. So he goes back there and he says they kind of make, you know, a quick kind of small talk to how you doing. Hey, how are you type thing? And then he says, uh, Usher was like, hey, man, you know, you uh, you kind of fucked up music for real singers. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah. look, and he said he thought he was joking at first. And he said, no. And then he, he saw the tone in his face and he said, "Nah, yeah, you kind of fucked up music, you know, for real singers. And he said. You know, he has so much respect for Usher. And he said that just started like a downward spiral of, um, you know, of depression and him questioning himself. And he's really started to question himself whether he really did fuck up music. So uh, what do you what do you think about this, Jeff? I mean, if we've been if this is true, right, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Um, if it's true, come on, man. Usher was just hating, obviously. He was mad because T-Pain had a, was getting a lot of bags at that point. You know, he was getting a lot of money. He was very popular. Um, he was riding a wave. And more importantly, like, I think T-Pain made the point himself. He was like, I did auto-tune. He was like, I ain't tell everybody to do it, right? Um, and that's what Usher was really mad about. 
I don't think he would have been mad if T-Pain had his own lane and was getting as much money as he did. But then you had Wayne, you know, Lil Wayne picked up the auto-tune. Kanye you know, then you had people like Ron Browse, all these people, right? Making Kanye, made 808s and Heartbreak, all of that. So you had people that felt like they could do a lot more in-house because they didn't need they didn't need to bring singers in no more. You know what I'm saying? Or for that period. I could just do it myself. I just do the lyrics and, and tune it up. Yep. So Usher probably felt his pockets getting a little lighter, you know? Um, so like most people, he started hating, you know? But what do you want me to say? Like, um, he he ended up, they said in the article that he ended up putting out a number one song with auto-tune after that. Yeah, it's so, it, it, I mean, come on. Because that was my thing. I was like, wait, is this the same Usher that um came out with, uh, what's the, what was that song? The the OMG, the you know, remember the, the yeah. drum with him? And, oh, my God. Yeah, see like, what I'm saying? Yeah, so I'm like, well, wait a minute. I just wanted to make sure. I was just checking, right? Um, Yeah, I feel like... um. I mean, this is this is tough. I mean, I, I think the take home message is. One, you never know what you're saying and how it can affect people. You know, I'm right. I'm you know, Usher is a highly respected individual. Everybody we know Usher's catalog. So if you're an R&B singer and you have a newer artist or I mean, I don't know how new it was like 2013 for T-Pain, but you have a newer artist and obviously you have artists that look up to you. you're Usher. Right. You've been out for years and megastar, you know, success. And for you to, again, wasn't there in the plane, but if you're going by how T-Pain, uh, his account of it, you know, you're saying that to an artist and you're Usher, like that's going to have an impact on somebody. You know, I can't sp- right. sit here and speak and say, yeah, that solely contributed to his depression. I don't know. Right. Um, I feel like it probably around that time T-Pain had already experienced a lot of backlash. Remember it was the, the death of auto-tune. You had a lot of other different rappers that were, you know, condemning the whole use of auto-tune. And maybe this was just something that kind of, because it's coming from such a respected figure in, in the music industry that it hits even harder. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's hate. If it's coming across, if you said it in this, this condescending manner and you, you, you said it with the goal to, you know, put this individual down. Um, and it's like we really have to be conscious and more aware of what we say. Right. You never know, of, you know, our impact and how what we say and when we're saying it and who we're saying it to, how it's going to impact another individual or, or the effect that it's going to have. Um, so but I also feel like, like you said, is this really, you know, hypocritical. You're going to go out and do a song with auto tune and, and then you're going to sit here and criticize this other individual. So, um, but I'm, I mean, it was good that, cause I watched the whole episode of that segment that, you know, later on, you know, T-Pain uh, with the help of support with his wife and other people that uh, he started to regain his, um, his confidence. And he's like, he became more comfortable and said, Hey, I'm going to do what I do. Right. I'm going to continue to do, you know, make music song. Right. And, um, you know, use this here voice modulator and, um, you know, continue to make music, and make money. So I'm happy he got to a point eventually through support that he was able to, you know, that he's doing OK mentally and emotionally. I mean, this is to me, it's just like you said, it's more about insight. Like you don't really know how you don't know anybody's level of vulnerability, you know, um, and you kind of don't know how your words impact them. So it's just about awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Usher is not responsible for T-Pain's depression. You know what I'm saying? That's, that would be ridiculous to say that. That You, you know what I'm saying? That would, that would be like if Steph Curry got depressed, if Patrick Ewing told him that he ruined basketball. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, come on, man. Errors change. You know, the new guy isn't always going to be like um, but it doesn't take away from the original point, right? People have different triggers. Um, obviously, you know, um, this is something that T-Pain internalized, you know, so it impacted him. Or somebody else might have let it roll off their back like a duck and be like, yo, he's just hating because I got the bag this month, this year, or whatever. Um, so I think it's more just about awareness, right? Like, um, of course, we could all be used being nice to each other and thinking about things before we say it. But more importantly, just um, like you said, realizing what the weight of your words are, have on another person, right? So on every level, like, so for me and you, if we're working with a student or somebody that we 
you know, that is counting on us for our opinion or our critique, you know, you can be honest with the person, but just knowing, you know, what your words might mean to them, whatever relationship you're in. So, you know, it's a good thing to know. Absolutely. All right, Jay, uh, before we get out of here, anything else uh, that we need to get to discuss, cover? Uh, nothing really, man. Just again, want to encourage people. Um, we appreciate the videos. Um, continue to send the videos and the questions. Um, that's about it, man. Appreciate yeah. the support. Absolutely. So, like, again, uh, we're on episode 20 due to your support, due to uh, your comments, your feedback. So, we appreciate everybody continuing to listen in and watch us on YouTube, listening on all the platform or all the podcast platforms the iHeartRadios, the Pandora, the Spotify's. Google and Apple podcasts, all of those. So um, we appreciate everybody listening. And like you said, continue to send videos in um, to the black psychologist podcast at gmail.com. Watch, listen, comment, subscribe. And uh, we appreciate you guys continue to tune in and rolling with us. All right, Jay, it's nothing else. I'll get at you, bro. All right, man. Next week, bro. Yes, sir.